Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm your host, Chris Holmes, professor of literature at Ithaca College. We have a wonderful show for you this week. One of my favorite authors, Dana Spiota, is here to talk about her newest novel, Wayward, the story of Sam, who upends her life to live in a house in which she might claim something like autonomy over her body, her choices, and her way of living in a world on fire. Like all of Spiata's fiction, no character comes to us as uncomplicated or easily dismissed as good or bad, and her language play works through us like a magic, offering both a propelling narrative force and the beauty of the unexpected. Wayward is also one of the best books I've ever read about the nature of motherhood and the sacrifices, worthy and otherwise, that mothers of all kinds are called upon to make. If you're looking for the read that will stay with you through the last gasps of summer, Wayward is your book. I hope you enjoy my interview with Dana Spiota. Let's start the show. Welcome back to Burned by Books. It's my pleasure today to welcome Dana Spiota. Dana is the author of five novels, Innocence and Others, winner of the St. Francis College Literary Prize and finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, Stone Arabia, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, Eat the Document, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and the winner of the American Academy's Rosenthal Foundation Award, and Lightning Field, a New York Times notable book and most recently, of the much-acclaimed Wayward. She has held a Guggenheim Fellowship, a New York Foundation for the Arts Fellowship, and the Rome Prize in Literature, among many such prestigious fellowships and awards. She is Associate Professor of English and on the faculty in the Creative Writing Program at Syracuse University. I'm very pleased to get a chance to speak with her today about Wayward, her meditation on the middle stages of a woman's life and the ways in which we go astray from the narrow paths that life lays out before us. Wayward takes up the story of Samantha Raymond, called Sam, an early 50s wife and mother who works at the Loomis House, a historical center devoted to the life of a 19th century female doctor, abortion advocate, and sometimes eugenicist. But it begins as a story about a house, 
Sam buys an arts and crafts home historically significant and a wreck. As she puts it, the house was falling apart. The house was beautiful. Unbeknownst to her husband, Mark, and daughter, Allie, Sam plans to leave their family home to live in the beautiful ruins of this house in the urban wilds of Syracuse. The house works beautifully as a grand metaphor for Sam's own body, in decay, a keeper of history and lives lived, a storehouse of birth and death, beautiful in its original fixtures but leaky, letting in cold drafts and holding the humidity and desperate heat of summer. If this is the wayward path, then Sam is embracing it. She looks everywhere for examples of middle-aged women living comfortably in their bodies, embracing the changes, and finding new kinds of strength, new desires that make them whole. Mostly, what she finds is the same kind of yearning for confidence and a purpose in a society that devalues the historical in every form, house and body. Wayward is also the story of motherhood and the problem of all-encompassing love for children. Allie, a smart and driven teenager with a penchant for tracking the etymologies of interesting words, is both the burning core of Sam's emotional life and an unknowable satellite existing forever at a distance from her, refusing to be fully seen. The push and pull of mother and daughter becomes more complicated when the novel gives Allie the narrative voice and we learn that the nerdy daughter has taken up with her mentor and teacher Joe in a relationship that is technically illegal and would, Allie believes, cause her mother to explode in flames. The struggle is then between two women, both desiring of autonomy and privacy while desperately needing one another. When Sam's wayward turn seems increasingly like a mistake, Spiota has other voices join the mother and daughter. Clara Loomis's letters as a young, defiant 19th century woman. Syracuse herself speaks through Sam's writing. And even Sam's own blood gets a chapter of its own to mark the body as fragile and necessary. The result is a novel of uncommon honesty about aging, motherhood, and the attachments with others we both crave and abhor. It is an ode to complicated cities with hidden histories and to women who seek to know themselves fully as beautiful, useful, meaningful, even when American society tells them otherwise. Wayward feels like a needed novel for our moment and a clarion call for us to embrace our wayward paths. It was a pleasure to live inside its world. Welcome to the show, Dana Spiota. Thank you so much, Chris. Would you begin for us by reading a section from the beginning? It's section two of the novel. Uh, yes. The house sat high on a tiny lot on Highland Street, which ran atop a hill that bordered a lawn expanse of grass and trees. It looked like a small sloping park, but it was actually a cemetery. The old graves scattered across the rise. Unless you were squeamish about graves, Sam wasn't. The sloping green hill was quite pretty. Highland itself offered a wide view of downtown. You could see the steeples of churches, and you could see how the small city was in a valley surrounded by hills. You could even see the kidney shape of Onondaga Lake, although it was often partly obscured by low-hanging clouds. 
if you turned your head to the left or if you looked out the side windows of the house, you could see Syracuse University up on another hill. You could locate it by the quilted low white bubble of the Carrier Dome, named for the nearly absent Carrier Corporation. All that remained were a handful of jobs, the Dome and Carrier Circle, a treacherous traffic roundabout that Sam hated. Soon after you spotted the Dome, you would notice the various spired and turreted campus buildings. The decision to leave her husband, the act of leaving really, began the moment she made an offer on the house. It was a Sunday. Sam woke up at 5 a.m., unable to continue sleeping. She attributed this unnecessarily early waking to the approach of menopause. Her period still came each month, but odd things had started changing in her body, even her brain, one of which was suddenly becoming awake at 5 a.m. on a Sunday, her mind shaking off sleep with unnegotiable clarity as if she had already drunk a cup of coffee. And just as with coffee, she felt alert, an adrenal burst, but she could also feel the fatigue underneath it all, the weariness. That morning, the wood floor was cold against her bare feet, but she couldn't find her slippers. It was still dark. She tried not to wake her husband. She used her phone to illuminate the way to the bathroom. She peed, flushed, washed. She brushed her teeth without looking in the mirror. She pushed up the blinds to peek outside. The sky was gradually lightening with the dawn, and half a foot of snow had fallen overnight. It was one of those Syracuse March snow dumps. Everyone complained because it should be spring, but why say that when it was never spring in March in Syracuse? Besides, snow in March was often spectacular because of the spring light. The sunrise that was creeping up now cast a pink and gold glimmer, and a little crust of ice on top of the snow glittered from the sky and from the street lamps. The trees, the roofs of the houses, even the salt-crusted cars looked beautiful. And like most spectacularly beautiful effects, it was almost too much, too dramatic, nearly lurid. Sam loved the drama of a March snow. March meant the sky would be bright, blindingly bright, not the cloudy darkness of January or the dingy gray monotony of February, the worst month. But here was the important part. Sam figured that she was the only person on earth who thought March snowstorms were wonderful, and this made her feel a bit proud of herself. Always she liked to imagine herself as subtly different from everyone else, enjoying the tension and mystique of being ordinary on the surface, but with a radical, original interior life. For example, back when Sam used to shop the sales at the Talbots and DeWitt with the other suburban ladies of her class and age, she separated herself. Sure, Sam had discovered that the classic A-line or sheath dresses made of solid-colored pont knits were so forgiving, so flattering, flattering, that tragic word, to a grotesque midlife misshapenness, a blurriness, a squareness, really. But despite being there and shopping because of an insider email blast notification of a super sale, Sam believed she was different from the other women. Inside, she was mocking the calibrated manipulations, mocking herself, noting the corporate branding and lifestyle implications of the preppy styles and colors, the classic plaids, the buttons on the sleeves, the ballerina flats, evoking a tastefully understated sensibility. It even occurred to her that the other women could be having the same interior thoughts, and the idea of conformity, at least in modern America, was never consciously sought after. You were allowed to keep a vain and precious sense of agency. Her sense of resistance was as manufactured as her need to buy flattering clothing. Nevertheless, Sam also believed that her having such self-critical, self-reflexive thoughts as she shopped set her apart from the other women, surely. So she still believed herself to be, however stealthily, an eccentric person, not suited to conventions of thought or sensibility. 
Later, this desire to be contrary to convention had taken on a new urgency well beyond clothes or matters of taste. An unruly, even perverse inclination animated her. It had been looking for a place to land, for something to fasten on. So now, not before, this odd inner state pushed her toward a highly destabilizing wildness, a recklessness that she could suppress no longer. Thank you so much. It's lovely to hear that read. Wayward opens with Sam purchasing a dilapidated historical home in downtown Syracuse to live in, apart from her husband and daughter. From there, the novel draws on architecture as a metaphor for bodies, families, cities, and communities. How did you decide upon a house as the functional heart of the novel? Um, well, when I my process is very much driven in a mysterious way, I think, by questions uh, and intuition. And so um, I had walked by a house that, that inspired the house in the book, um, and, um, it is dilapidated and boarded up and, uh, was once very beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered about it and it just captivated me. And I had this idea of a woman falling in love with a house and then only realizing after she'd made an offer on the house that, that she was going to leave her life and her husband. Um, and the consequence of that, that appealed to me and that's where I began just this a kind of rupture um, and then following out the consequences of that rupture and then writing to discover why she did this thing was compelling to me. And her voice came out of that. And once I had her voice, um, then I was able to see who she was, understand who she was. It's so strange the way that works with um, writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and her eccentricity is really that she has this um, and many of my characters, I think, in my books do this, have a, a, a kind of obsession with something. And, and in this case, she's, she loves architecture and she notices architecture in a way that's very personal so, uh, and almost tactile. So that once I understood that about Sam, then um, uh, that allowed that part of the book to have this architectural focus um, and the metaphorical parts of that all make sense to me, but they were not something I began with, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it, um, well, and it seems like you may have an interest in, um, you know, the particular architectures that define certain cities. Was this house that you, um, that you first saw, did it have a particular meaningfulness to how you thought about Syracuse as a place? Yes, I mean, I think that the um, there are a lot of a lot of the the prosperous time in Syracuse um, where a lot of the uh, domestic architecture was built was during the arts and what we call the arts and crafts era. And the arts and crafts era is interesting because it has this, you know, this philosophical idealism behind it and, and came out of, uh, you know, critiquing. Um, the 19th century industrial, you know, that kind of industrialization and, um, wanting to have, um, getting back to some, uh, more hands-on authenticity. And, um, and then of course it just became a style, you know, that, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. <laughs> rich people <laughs> wanted. Um, so I'm very attracted to these kinds of paradoxes, the way that, um, that uh, something that can start in a, a realm of, um, of 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 idealism and then become 
um, corrupted and ruined, but still mm-hmm. have elements of that um, idealism in it. Oh, and yeah. then, uh, and then that's kind of the beauty of it is that um, it, it that that once something is beautiful, it also means that it can be kind of corrupted too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that that I find that compelling about that particular era. That that and 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 that those houses are so enduring because they are built um, to such uh, uh, intense relationship to. Um, material mm-hmm. so that they they hold up very well and I like this idea as I was progressing in the book uh, and again a lot of this stuff only comes out as you're working you're like oh why am I writing about this oh maybe it's because of that um, it, that that these houses uh, exist existed before Sam was born and they will outlive her uh, and so these mortal questions became, uh, I think the book starts in a register of, of satire and it moves uh, to some to a more emotional, mortal register as it closes. And so that became the arc of the book for me, I think, in some way. So this is a novel deeply concerned with a woman's autonomy, namely in a time of putative freedom for American women. What are the parameters for how a woman is allowed to make decisions about her own life? You dramatize this with Sam's decision to live apart from the family that she loves, while brilliantly contrasting this radical autonomy with Sam's desire to have some control over the life of her daughter and the death of her mother. Do you feel like this is a defining feature of our lives, the struggle between a need to control and a desire to be our own person? Uh, That's so astute, and I think absolutely yes, because... Uh, and I think that's partially why menopause is such a big part of the book, um, that the number one thing <laughs> that you can't control is your body. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the, the terms are set for all of us, right? Um, and y- you you can wiggle around and, and ter- <laughs> with it a little bit, but ultimately I'll end up in the same place. And so um, I do think being able to understand that um, – you cannot control so much, which also does not let you off the hook for um, being responsible for what you can control, um, that that tension is very much a, a feature of midlife. And I think menopause, for the, for the people that experience those symptoms, uh, it's a very dramatic reminder um, that, you, uh, that, that our lives are finite and that we can't control our bodies um, and, uh, and that's humbling, but I think it also leads to a kind of wisdom because, uh, you know, the, the, the world will go on without you and, and maybe that's okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not the center of the universe. And so I think it's particular to women that there, there's a part of the novel that's very interested in, in how women are, um, both, uh, colluding in the state of things and, um, and, and, uh, you know, complicit with a, a with a lot of the state of things but they're also at the same time subjugated and 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 so to be a a woman in contemporary society is to is to feel yourself pulled in these different directions at least a, you know a kind of privileged white woman like Sam and so she she is both uh so i think her gesture of uh upending her comfort and putting herself in a in a deliberately discomfort comforting place is both a, a supreme act of privilege, but also, I think, a kind of brave 
move at the same time. I think she's trying to have some clarity about what her, where she is and who she is. Um, and that, that's, uh, and taking a kind of, um, and reckoning with it. Uh, and, and, and she may be, and, and that, that has consequences. I mean, her, it estranges her further from her daughter, Uh, but ultimately maybe that's a good thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As you were saying it, I was thinking that it's interesting that so much time is spent with men's midlife crises. Um, when women have this very discreet biological marker of the, of the midlife where the body kind of shouts at you in this way that I think is kind of fundamentally different. And you, you dramatize that so well with this idea of the mid, the sort of like middle of the night, wake up where you can't get back to sleep and you're forced to confront all these things. And, and I would think that we should have lots and lots of narratives of women's midlife crises brought on by these like fundamental announcements of the body body but it's strange that it's the other way around well i think that it's it the reason why is because there is still despite all the progress that you refer to about women uh have made uh it is still shameful to to admit that you're aging particularly as a woman i suppose for for all people but um it is uh and i think that the when the midlife crisis has been portrayed I was thinking about it in in films and television shows as well as uh, in books. It's often about, um, you know, that that I'm no longer, I'm become invisible to men or I've become less desirable. Mm -hmm. I'm aging in this way. And and so I'm going to have an affair with a young man or I'm going to be left by my husband for a younger woman and, and I have to figure out what to do with myself. And I did really, was very conscious of working against that. And I really wanted Sam to not be so interested in those. I didn't want her to have an affair. I didn't want her to, um, want to look young again. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I think those are kind of trivial depictions of what midlife is about. Um, I think she, that, so, so that was quite deliberate. And I think that is kind of a, uh, and that's why I think Sam is so drawn to these women that embrace their aging in this um, aggressive way. I think that's, that, right. that's appealing to her that they are in your face about their aging um, and their refusal to capitulate into sort of being ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, those women are hip- hypocritical and um, full of contradiction, like all of the people in the book. Are. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not so simple. I mean, you know, this MH charismatic kind of culty figure that she gets involved with is actually kind of quite glamorous. She's not really grotesque at all. So <laughs> yeah. And her, uh, her, her genes that are meant to signal like just a kind of disregard for fashion are noted as like $300, like super fashionable right. and, you know, very purposeful in the kind of uh, image that she wants to produce. Yeah. So I think that was, you know, that, 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 um, that tension between, uh, uh, surface and reality and, and, constantly characters are constantly thinking they know who they are and then it turns out they're not there is a like an another layer of hypocrisy underneath it or another layer of self-delusion and i think sam is desperate to not be (laughs) self-deluded and of course that's impossible i mean we live as humans by 
by layers of self-delusion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, we, if we thought, um, but but there's uh, and it's paralyzing to 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 eliminate all that. But I think it's it's important a time to, from time to time to have these foundational questioning moments where you you do try to have clarity uh, about who you really are and what you really represent. And um, even if you can't stay there forever, there's a, a wonderful switcheroo in the narrative voice where just when we're sort of um, comfortable with and and wound up with um, Sam's direction of the narrative, Allie shows up as the, as the voice that gets to um, speak about the world. And it's at this point that we understand that Allie desires the same kind of bodily and emotional independence that her mother has been seeking while trying her best to deny it um, for Allie. Did you mean that to be a surprise shift? I was uh, pleasingly shocked by it. Yes, I mean it came that way for me as a uh, an author as well because I um I am first envisioned the book as being all told from Sam's very subjective point of view uh, even though it's third person it's very close to her consciousness throughout her sections um and that became uh, that felt too narrow to me as I was writing. And I thought, well, you know, what if this, what if there was a scene that we saw from Sam's point of view, and then we see it from her daughter's point of view. And so I started to write Allie. And once I had done that, I saw this whole other um, plot came into the book of what Allie was up to and what her secrets were and what she wanted and her autonomy and, and her vision of things and and it became a strong counter and then the irony that 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 came out as I was writing is that Allie is trying so hard to separate um and uh and she's ultimately I think not that different from her mother even though in a superficial way she seems very different uh they have (laughs) a lot of the same uh values and eccentricities but Mm -hmm. they need just they need uh, space from one another. And this is, um, you know, uh, a struggle, I think, for both of them. And I think a lot of what Allie does is reactive, which is not what you want. You want right. it to come out of what you really desire. And, and But I do think she has... Um, so that voice became very, very important. And I think one of the great things about fiction and novels and art is that we as readers can see more than the characters and we can mm-hmm. see these ironies and we can see these connections that we can't in our own lives because we're so stuck in our own subjectivity. So you can have that sense of realism of what it's like to be in a, in a character's mind, but also get this broader view. Um, and so that really becomes, I think, a great energy in, in a novel. Yeah, I love that they're both both narrative voices are circling this same contradiction um, about a life where you need, you know, to be yourself, even when that means making mistakes, and also a need for others to to support and and imbue you with meaning. And they're they're both very much on the same kind of quest. But um we watch as they circle it and and can't, you know, they stick a toe in it and but can't quite get there, can't quite get there and the um the way that that propels the the narrative is is quite wonderful and as you say our readerly perspective to that irony is um is really important 
the uh, the impetus for Sam's move um, to this house is the election of Donald Trump. An astonishing number of books that I've read in the past two years have been set immediately post the 2016 election. It has made my experience of the novel one of hyper-contemporanity, as though authors were speeding to grab up the political events of the moment to make their books feel more alive. Why do you think our former petty tyrant uh, has been a catalyst for so much fiction? Well, you know, I think that uh, I, I can only speak for myself, but I think that, uh, you know, if you want to write about what it's like to be alive now, um, it's really you have to talk about the political situation. Uh, the And the big rupture was the, the Trump election. And I, it, it, it's almost like it's, it's like writing a novel about now without writing about technology hmm. uh, as much as you don't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> you must. Um, you have to grapple with it because the characters, realistically, uh, unless they're completely clueless, would be affected by it. Having said that, I do think that 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 that, that it's only one contributing factor to um, her husband thinks that's what really uh, is the catalyst. Mm -hmm. But I think mm -hmm. Sam uh, sees it as uh, you know a multivalent. I mean, she sees the her mother's. Um, prognosis, mother's revelation that she's dying, uh, I think is a big factor uh, that Sam feels very ill prepared for what's to come and realizes that she needs to change if she's going to to um, to cope, if she's going to to accept uh, I, that there's this horrifying feeling in midlife where um, you realize that what's to come is much harder than what came before. <laughs> that, uh, and she's very nostalgic for when her daughter was young and her mother, and she could be with her mother and her daughter in this uncomplicated way, and that doesn't last. <laughs> and um, and that's that, that's the job maybe of all this extra life. I mean, one of the questions that keeps coming up is what to what do you do with this extra life? Um, meaning, you know, the, 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 the part after the first 50 years, the second, whatever to come, um, uh, postmenopausal and, uh, what's the, you know, is it, is it enough to just see yourself, but, or is there something else that needs to be done, um, with all you've been given? Those are really important. I think moral questions and identity Absolutely. questions. Wayward is really the best thing I've read about motherhood since Helen Phillips' The Need. Hers is a horror story about the impossibly profound love between a mother and a child, and yours is a complicated love story about that bond. Sam leaves the house where Allie lives and wants nothing more than to be closer to her. Why do you think this push and pull between parent and child is so fundamental to the adult lives of those who have children? Well, it's, it's complicated <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have any answers. I, I, you know, I, I wanted to just describe the complication. I think, um, I think part of it is that, uh, I having written it, um, and also experiencing it somewhat is that I think that you can have this very precious focus on your own child um, and the world is full of children and you can lose your perspective. And I think that's partially why 
Sam is so um, gets so angry about the college application project yeah. <laughs> that her daughter's going through <laughs> because it feels um, it that that uh, having all this good um, energy devoted on just one person is not only um, wrong given how many people in the world need uh, things, but also um, not good for the child, mm-hmm. you know, not good for the, the human that you're trying to, to help make their way in the world to just try to um, that that over parenting, that overbearingness, um, that that trying to give them everything and protect them from making any mistake uh, is bad parenting. Um, and I think uh, that Sam leaving in some sense, on some deep level, she knows that that's also a good thing for her daughter to give her daughter space, even though emotionally she wants to hold her so tightly. Um, and I think that that's partially because being a parent is such, it, it's an experience of love that I think um, you only, you think you understand before it happens that it must be equivalent a mother loving a daughter is equivalent to how you feel about your own mother. You love your mother mm-hmm. and, um, and you love your daughter. But it turns out actually that the parenting part of it is much more intense, um, at least from my, expect, uh, my experience and from what I, uh, Sam d- uh, feels in the book, that, um, that the, there's uh, – and, 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 and it's, it's very seductive because it feels selfless, Right. Mm-hmm. When you love your child, you feel that it's great to get it. You escape yourself in some way because you're taking care of someone else. But there's a kind of narcissism to it as well because it's such a narrow focus. And it, and and and, um, and so I was very interested in in all the complications of contemporary uh, middle class motherhood. I guess is what I would say. There's a there's a beautiful and complicated scene when when Sam is at the gym and she goes to the showers and she sees uh, an a, a adult woman with her adult uh, daughter who she surmises may have Down syndrome, and they're in the shower together and she's helping her daughter to to shower and they are delighted with each other and there's an ease um, with each other with each other's bodies and um, and a literal a physical connection between a an adult daughter and a and a woman past that sort of mid midpoint in in her life that Sam realizes she will probably never have again um, but it's complicated because she it's not said directly but of course she understands that the the difficulties of this particular kind of dependency are incredible and something much different than she has with Allie but I was wondering what you what were you thinking when you wrote that scene well it 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 has that the I think it reminds Sam of the bodily intimacy you have, the you know that that it's so particular and it exists in no other place in your life and it's fleeting, where you feel so intimate with someone in a non-sexual way, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's a revelation in motherhood is that you can feel this intense bodily intimacy in a non-sexual context, and sexuality is a very complicated. 
uh, subject is something they fight about when uh, that that uh, when um, Allie goes to the mall as a 14 year old and the dangers of her not realizing uh, what the world is and how the world will view her and Sam not knowing how much to protect or repress or to frighten her daughter about uh, the power and and the um, subjugation of being a sex uh, object um, in the world. Mm -hmm. And so uh, those are all complicated issues, but there is this incredible, um, when you have a young child, I think whether you're a a father or a mother, uh, where you just appreciate the beauty and, um, and the voluptuous quality of, of affection that you get with small children that is a, a divorce from a, a sexuality. And at least in American culture, uh, it doesn't get replicated in any other pl- You don't find that any, in any other relationship, really. That's true. Yeah. So in thinking about the, the various things that I think distinguish your novel and signify for me that it is a, a work of literary fiction is the way in which you deal with what would be the potential villains of the novel and that you really refuse to satisfy our base readerly instinct for the easy villains. Joe, the older man who takes up with Ali, um, you know, would be ripe for for your demonization, and we would probably enjoy it as as readers. But even that relationship um, is one where Joe is sort of subtly pushing Allie to reconnect with her mother. Mark, um, Sam's estranged husband, is remarkably kind and understanding, um, upending pretty much every other such husband in literature. Um <laughs> Is this is this something that you think that literary fiction can do well, um, and it, and does it happen, you know, more than I think it does? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that people are seldom um, all good or all bad in real life, um, and I think that uh, we kind of lose track of that sometimes because. Um, you know, the way we engage with the world is um, very fast uh, and in a shallow way, uh, you know, mostly through social media, it seems, um, in which, you know, things are rendered in uh, black and white terms and good and bad. And I do think that 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 fiction is a place where that doesn't happen, uh, you know, that, that, that you can still condemn uh, what Joe has done and see him as doing bad things. I mean, he's, you know, a libertarian and a developer with full of hypocrisy and he's doing this, uh, you know, illegal and inappropriate relationship. But, um, but he, he is appealing to, um, to Allie, you know, Allie likes him, likes <laughs> sleeping with him. She grows to dislike him. But, um, you know, she does it on her own terms. And uh, and so it doesn't I didn't want the agency to be on him. I didn't want it to be about Joe um, simply as a, a predator. But I wanted it to be, you know, that he's this, you know, kind of ordinary bad guy yeah. in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. And um, and he has terrible taste in, in <laughs> renovations. And, you know, and she kind of condemns him aesthetically 
before she condemns him morally, mm-hmm. uh, only when, you know, and, and then he ends up uh, breaking up with her um, when, you know, she has the impulse to push away from him, but she's still sexually attracted to him, so she doesn't quite do it. Um, so it's really, uh, you know, and, and in terms of, uh, so I think Joe is probably, the and Joe and M.H., the, uh, the woman um, who's also the, a kind of predator in the book, um, they're, they're, they're both, uh, they're both, um, the bad guys, but at the same time, they say things that are true. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and they, they are as bad guys often do. Um, so it's <laughs> not that I don't think there are people who are doing bad things and don't, and deserve to be condemned and punished for those things. But I also think they seldom, um, the reason why they're dangerous is because they have, Parts, they have a story they tell themselves about what they're doing where they're not bad, right? Mm-hmm. Where they understand themselves to be doing something um, appropriate. And I, I think in a weird kind of way, I think MH is probably the darkest character. In the, and, and maybe um, uh, John Humphrey Noyes also seems pretty dark in the book, too. Right. <laughs> uh, although complicated um, in that he's, you know, he's got a predatory relationship with uh, young women in his community. He's the the all powerful male in this you know subculture he's created, but he also uh, believes what he's doing. You know, he believes he's righteous and um, and is persuasive um, in in many ways. So yeah, that's it, that's an interesting place to be, I think, for fiction. Um, and I and 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 the husband, you know, he he. I didn't want it to be that she had a terrible marriage. So we were, you know, of course she should leave because that seems cliche and, and what's to discover there. Yeah. But yeah. what if you're, what if you need to leave and it isn't a terrible relationship? Yeah. You know? Um, and so she backslides and starts sleeping with him again and she's, she keeps him in her life. She just doesn't want to live with him anymore, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. because she needs to, she needs her own space. So, um, yeah, so it's, it, letting it be as complicated as it needs to be. And there's a part of me that, that understood that when Sam doesn't um, uh, turn on, you know, when she fi- finds out about Joe in the end of the book and she doesn't react the way she, she um, would have. Uh, I, I think some readers might be disappointed that, that she doesn't, you know, uh, punch him in the face or something. <laughs> she just kind of walks away and lets her daughter do what she has to do. And 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 I think that that the um, the dark forces in the book become um, more systemic. You know, the the poverty and the inequity of the city, um, and the injustice uh, that is a, every much a part of your our lives, whether you look at them or not, um, and the kind of uh, small um, uh, the small and big um, contradictions that we live with. To me, those are the dark forces in the book. Yeah, and the the idea of making that, in particular, uh, the men who are, are are some of the villains here, making them minor when they see themselves as major, um, <laughs> and allowing those systematic things to rise up and to moving the kind of individual badness out of the kind of center of the novel's heart, I think is a wonderful and different kind of way to treat people who do bad things. Um, and I, and it was really clear in, in the novel, how valuable 
unpredictable that was. And especially, you know, Sam's decision not to punch him in the face at the fair um, is probably a fundamental piece of what allows her to to come back together with her daughter um and that's a even though you sort of want that punch to come you realize how important it was that she didn't do that you pay a lot of attention to our frantic attempts as humans to stop the aging clock Almost everyone in Wayward is measuring their biometrics in some fashion. They pay an excessive amount of attention to the chemical processes of their body, whether it is via dietary exclusion, weightlifting, or the use of technology to modern, uh, monitor their bodies. Sam has an obsession with young men who seek to treat their bodies as machines capable of defying time. There's empowerment in Sam's own attempts to be stronger physically, but is that empowerment ultimately secondary to what you call the terror and shame of our aging bodies? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very smart. I just, um, she, she wants to be strong, and, but she also sees um, the narcissism in that attention to the self, right? And that feels very um, problematic to her, even as she feels the, the need to do it, participate in it. Hmm. And I think that is, mm-hmm. um, that is something that's, that uh, I can certainly relate to, uh, you know, that, that kind of push and pull of how much, how much you cherish your own body <laughs> in hmm. the face of, uh, you know, one that 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 you're still not going to escape the terms no matter what, and two that that you know there there are people actually starving while you're um, you know dieting. So it's a uh, the, 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 there's something um, really uh, intensely contradictory in those gestures and those obsessions. And I also just noticed this in that one section where she's with her. Nico, the weightlifter, and she's kind of making, you know, Sam, Sam makes fun of a lot of people, including herself. And I think that's her saving grace is that she, she makes a lot of jokes. Um, and she kind of, um, uh, and, and, and is quite, uh, she's judgmental, but she's harshest on herself, I think. But she sees this, um, this focus on the self and self care. It, it, it did irritate me how much people talk about self-care all the time. <laughs> so I had to put it in the book. I found there's something so um, wrong about it, really. Um, I, understand, I understand the impulse is that, you know, we're, 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 especially as women, you're sort of drawn to be self-sacrificing mm-hmm, and putting mm-hmm. everyone else before you, especially if you're a mother, right? Um, and so the impulse is to go the opposite way and say we got to take care of self but that also doesn't work <laughs> do, do you find it to be a kind of leftover from the capitalist imperative to turn your body into a kind of um cog where there's never any stop of the work day it bleeds over into everything and so there's this weird kind of mantra about self-care um which really does very little to care for the self while causing you to then ignore the needs of those um in much more dire situations Absolutely. I think you've put it very well. And, and I think that, uh, the, um, 
it is work too, right? So it does feel very yeah. American. It does feel like American capitalism. You've got to work on and, it, <laughs> and, and it's work that costs money, right? Mm, so it is mm-hmm. all of those. It's it's essentially turning yourself into the ultimate consumer, you know, object that never is finished, right? Um, so that 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 is, uh, yeah, that's something that has to be interrogated. Let's at the least, right? Yeah, I, gosh, and, and and just thinking about the money side of it, half of the things that social media um, advertises to me are about supposed self care, but it is an extraordinary expense if one were to go down that road. Um, the I love the sort of way that the the house and the body in this novel are um, standing in for one another, and that the ways in which the body kind of shows itself as as beautiful and even in its aging um, comes up again and again with Sam's relationship to the house. And there are two moments in the novel that I just wanted to flag because I find them them beautiful in their own way. And one is from Clara, um, her letters, which exist in the novel in which she's talking about her young body. Um, and she says, what a thing this body is, what discoveries will I make with it? And then it's, it's paralleled nicely with this moment where Sam is sort of gradually understanding that as hard as she will try, her body is out of her control. What a thing, this out-of-control body. It made her aware of how her body was alien to her, progressing toward its decline, its next phase, regardless of her desire or collusion. Her participation was not required. Both of these are true about the body at at every stage, even older bodies, that they are full of vast potential, and that all bodies are moving through these phases of life, whether we want them to or not. Um, Do you think it's ever possible to be content with these paradoxical notions of the body? Oh, that's so beautifully connected. Thank you for that. Um, uh, Yes, I, I do think that those there's this moments, there are moments of peace where you can accept all of those contradictions and celebrate Um, And maybe that's the answer to this kind of self-care thing. Maybe the better way to think about it is um, a celebration of inhabiting a body um, with its flaws and with its aging and with its potential. And uh, and I think I, I love that you read that moment from Clara because I think she becomes another person in the book that we haven't heard from directly. We've just heard about Mm-hmm, and we've seen mm-hmm. her externally. And I think and I hope that it becomes kind of shocking to sort of see her. And again, this idea of idealism before it's corrupted, yeah. um, where and, 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 you know, she becomes this really problematic figure like a lot of um, a lot of women that were interested in reproductive rights also kind of veered into eugenics at, at certain points. Mm-hmm. And um and and again, it's one of those things where I'm very attracted to these com- these contradictory, paradoxical, uh, both idea you know idealism mixed with um, you know this darker thing that comes out of it. And and maybe that's a that's a good way of thinking about our bodies too. Our bodies are both this this um, place of idealism and experience that's both pure and um, and accessible at any moment, but also uh, a place of shame and a place mm-hmm. where we experience uh, our 
reminders of our death and um, and the fact that we have no control ultimately. So uh, it, it, it is, yeah, so much of this book exists on the plane of the body and, um, and, and keeps returning to the body. And I think that's partially why the blood that you spoke of comes out because, it, you know, even beyond Sam's consciousness, uh, her body is still there, you know, doing its thing, whether it's bleeding out into the floor <laughs> or... You know, she imagines that she's that 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 she's someone is after her and has hit her. But in fact, it's just her own body that's really um, attacking her at this point. And uh, and 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 getting back to this thing that goes through the whole novel, which is this insomnia. And there's something about insomnia in particular, which hers is driven by her hormones. But we all experience insomnia as this weird moment where. You're both um, your body is supposed to be able to do that. One of the basic functions of your body has gone haywire, right? You're supposed yeah. to be able, sleeping should not be complicated, right? And if you look at a child, it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow what who we live, how we live our lives or has made e- our bodily functions become something we're conscious of. And, and then we needlessly complicate it or maybe needfully complicate it. And then we don't even know how to be a body anymore. So that's just, a, you know, then you feel that you need to find some reconciliation, some peace. And so par- partially, I think it is accepting. Maybe the problem with insomnia is that you cast it as a problem. Maybe it's not a problem. Maybe it's just your body. Yeah, that's um, the the way you you put that. The idea of understanding that your you know your body is a body and, and that you exist within it, and that it has these processes that we come to then kind of layer on to these anxieties about them, whereas they are um, the body is acting out its its purpose in various ways, and we you know time and again in the novels. Sam comes to these realizations uh, that, you know, the the mid, the being up in the middle of the night is actually has allowed her to think about things that the rush of the day may have been hidden from her prior to this. And that, in fact, that's a, something to be grateful for, even though she's so afeard of everything that comes along with this idea of the change that is making her sort of see her body as dysfunctional or decrepit or aging. Um, but it, in fact, imbues upon her this time um, that even though it's anxiety provoking is time to think and, and to be. And I really, um, I appreciated that about it. I wanted to think a little bit about Syracuse in the novel. You live and work there, and and the novel is very interested in the history of what gets called the Salt City and the Emerald City. Um, It's a city that gets a chance to speak for herself through a pamphlet that we read at the end of the novel. and Sam's relationship to the city is learning to love something that feels and looks unlovable. All the great historical houses seem to sit empty in the city center. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your relationship to Syracuse. Yes. Um, yes, yeah, Syracuse is an... It, uh, I think many places are interesting if you look closely at them. And a small city um, in 2017 seemed you know, an interesting 
place to focus rather than New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco, the places that usually seem to be the center of the culture. So yes, decentering <laughs> these the usual cities and taking this um, you know homely uh, uh, one where prosperity has moved on. There are so many cities like that in the United States. Um, and thinking and, and, and kind of looking at it as it reveals its beauty and its decrepitude and it's, you know, that the heart, that the, the ironies it has too, just like the bite where what used to be the Erie Canal is just a, you know, arterial, uh, commercial road that has all the box stores on it now oh, or, yeah. uh, James Street that used to have all these beautiful houses when Cla- and Clara Loomis's era and now is, you know, just kind of um, uh, been built over in a, in a haphazard way. So, yeah, I, th- I find it an interesting place where the more you are attuned to the history, and, and Syracuse has such an interesting history, which is why the 19th century part of the book is important, um, you know, that, that the, the woman's movement and the abolition movement mm-hmm. and all of those 19th century reform movements, so much of it happened in this area um, because of the Erie Canal and because it was centrally located. And, um, and, and that sometimes feels forgotten, um, or not appreciated. There is the, you know, uh, in the way that it ought to be. And then Syracuse in its present state is one of the, one of the things about a small city is you can't really hide from the inequity. I mean, you go block by block and you have these beautiful, well-kept houses next to boarded up houses and, uh, you know, and it's, it's a vibrant, alive place. There's a long history of accepting refugees here, and mm. that's still the case. And it's part of the vitality of the city. But there's also, you know, uh, systemically oppressed sections of the city. The 15th Ward, which was the historically black section, got wiped out for I-81. Um, and now, they, you know, and there's just parking lots where there used to be neighborhoods um, or, or worse, empty lots. And uh, and so it's a city that still has a lot of vitality and potential and beauty. Um, and uh, and it has this kind of uh, American post prosperity um, sadness to it that uh, that that is very compelling to me. Uh, and I just and I think being in fiction, it's important to be really specific and local if you want to talk about bigger things. So the specificity of just you know, if I'm going to, if it's going to take place in Syracuse, it's really going to take place in Syracuse, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I had to quell the part of myself that says, no one wants to read about Syracuse. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's going to be interesting because it's going to be, you know, it's so full of life and contradiction, just like, uh, you know, just like the house, right. Mm-hmm. That she writes about and just like the body that she writes about. Cause who wants to read about middle-aged women with menopause? Nobody. Right. But, you know, maybe it's interesting if you just uh, attend it. And I was so pleased to read about Syracuse. You know, it's a it's a city very close to where I live, uh, but about which I know almost nothing. And I feel like it doesn't get to feature in fiction and film very often. Um, but it does have this deeply interesting historical past. And, and I was so glad to see uh, all of it in its complicated inequity uh, on display in this novel, and 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 similarly pleased to read about uh, you know a woman in, in a menopausal 
uh, moment. But in any case, reading about um, women at that time in their lives was um, both a, a refreshing change, but also really welcome. Can we talk for a second about the beauty of your book as a material object? Uh, uh, it just it has this wonderful spectrum of pink, red, and yellow <clears throat> with the simple house keys dangling from the book title. Um, but it's also it's it's a very tall sort of narrow book, um, and it feels like it has stature to it, like a you know a structure that's uncommon um, to uh, to novels that I tend to hold in my hand. Did you have a lot of input in the design and format of the book? And what's your feeling about physical versus electronic books? Well, I think. I, I do think it's a really um, compelling object and to have it in your hands really puts you in the right state of mind to read the book, um, which doesn't always happen. Um, so I'm very pleased that you feel that way. Cause I feel that way too. They, the narrow trim, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a little bit more narrow and tall than uh, books. Usually the hardcover books usually are. Um, and, and some people have said to me that it looks like a door. Mm. Oh, uh, I like that. House, yeah. Which I think. Very nice. And then if you look on the, um, the spine, there's the, the colophon for Kanaf, which is the oh, board yeah. guy has a little key on it. <laughs> oh uh, yeah. It's just, it's just a beautifully, and I love the typeface too. Mm -hmm. And I did get to have, um, the designers, uh, came up with all of this, but I had, I got to say yes, um, or, or no to it. And, and, but this was the one, you know, the, there was a slight variation on this that, that we changed slightly, but, um, really just the, the, the type was switched. The, my name was in the kind of handwritten kind of Sharpie written and the title was in the type and we switched that around or something like that. Mm -hmm. But other than that, this was the way they came up with it. And, and, and I also think the type within the book is really important um, because there are so many different formats, right? Everything from, uh, you know, uh, internet comments and letters and pamphlets yeah. and, um, and having that, uh, you know, this it kind of somewhat arts and crafts related style, <laughs> you know, the, the typeface, I think, and, and the design of the interior of the book is really a big part of it, too. And I think it is really, um, since the book about the body uh, I like that, that this is the body of the book. Mm -hmm. So it feels um, like you have a physical relationship to it. And I, and I like that. Um, and I think about that a lot with technology. I mean, a book is just, uh, the, uh, a physical book is an, is, a, is, is technology too. It's outdated old technology. Oh, that's right. Um, and, um, uh, and I, when I think about tech, when I write about tech, I'm always thinking, the reason why I have it in my book is because it's part of what how we live now and it shapes us so profoundly. But when I want to write about it, I always think about the two things. One is what does it feel like on your body to engage with this technology? You know, what does it feel like in your hand and, and um, when you swipe your phone or when you open a book? Getting it back to the body seems the place for me where interesting fiction happens and something that fiction can do that other things can't do. And then the other part of it is, what does it feel like in your mind? Like, how does your consciousness interact with it? Mm -hmm. um, and so those two things, that tension, um, are the way that I... Uh, so, yeah, so I think of it as a, a, a superior technology to electronic in every way for me as a reader. Mm -hmm. Because it, 
you know, you're, you're sitting in a chair with that physical object and that intimate relationship and you can't click through and you're not distracted. And that seems more and more important as we, the, I feel the purgatory of getting into novels has become, and I'm an old person. I can't imagine what it's like for young people, but once you're in, it's the same experience, but but getting in is more difficult because you just want to check your phone and you want to, yeah. you know, return emails and you have to sort of force yourself. And so the book allows you to do that. This old technology allows you to disconnect in a way that's necessary to get through the purgatory of getting into a book. And then once you're in, you, you feel the pull of uh, if it's a good book, you feel the pull of the book itself. But um, but yeah, so it's almost like books need to be uh, physical now for you to really experience them. Having said that, I'm glad they're electronic books because, um, I do like that you can search for things in electronic books in a way, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but, like you remember a word from earlier in the book and you can search for it and find it again. So it does, um, enhance some aspects of reading. So um, I do like that, especially if I'm teaching a book. That seems really important. I I agree. Uh, well, I I honestly, for me, sort of fiction can't even happen in electronic form. I think because of exactly what you describe the needed purgatory um, phase that we have to be in to to truly kind of engage it. But I do like reading other things electronically for that searchability. But I almost, um, you know, I can't let go of the fact that the antiquated technology of the physical book allows that separation, even if it means I have to like lock my phone somewhere in in another room and give someone the key that isn't me. Um, But speaking of the purgatory, um, we're recording in the last gasps of summer. Uh, What are the best things you've read in this strange, strange summer? And are there things you're looking forward to in the fall lineup of book releases? Uh, yes, um, I, I will expand a little bit past the summer because, uh, you know, um, if you allow me, uh, the, the two books that, the three books, I would say one is, um, Katie Kitamura's intimacies. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read earlier in the year and then reread cause I had an event with her and I, I love the book even more on the second read. I recommend that highly. Um, and I would, uh, and then Anthony So's collection of short stories after parties, which I've read, uh, again. Um, and he was a student at Syracuse university. Oh, he was. Oh my goodness. And it's an extraordinary collection of stories. And I just love how it, it's political and it's, uh, and it's pointed, but it's so funny, Hmm. you know, and it's so full of life. Um, his um, death is so uh, tragic, especially with that um, novels just prominence now. Yeah, yeah, that that is terrible, terrible. But the book remains. Yes, you know? it does. And yeah, he, and he lives in the book. And then, um, and also, um, uh, All's Well by Mona Awad, uh, which just came out. Um, I love that book. Is another book that's so interested in the body in a totally different way. You know, it's got a uh, really kind of uh, amazing magical conceit in Shakespeare, but it also has this um, a, a, about a woman uh, experiencing like chronic invisible pain and being liberated from that. And I really um, love that book as well. And then I'm really looking forward to soon um, Harrow by uh, Joy Williams, her first novel in, I don't know, maybe 15 years or something. And she's one of my favorite writers. 
and I haven't started it yet. But I, but I think she's principally a poet. Is is that right? Uh, no, short story writer. Short story writer. Uh, okay. Short story. And she's her. She's an amazing writer. And this is another kind of. Um, it's sort of uh, from what I understand, um, as I haven't read it yet. Uh, it's very short, but it's a, a kind of post environmental apocalypse. And she is, you know, she's been a radical environmentalist forever, and writes about the animal world and the natural world like nobody else. And I, I think it's going to be a harrowing book, but I'm, hmm. I'm ready because her sentences are just um, amazing. So, um, so that's, that's up, that's up next for me, Joy Williams. That sounds fabulous. And um, Katie Kitamura was uh, my guest a couple of episodes uh, ago, and I agree, agree with you entirely. That book is really, really tremendous, and I look forward to, to teaching it in, in future years as well. Yeah, me too. Well, Dana, thank you so much. This has been such a lovely conversation, and I so uh, adore this novel, and I hope that everyone will get a chance to hold the material thing itself, door, house, book um, in their hand while they read it. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much, Chris. It was wonderful. Take care. My deepest thanks to Dana Spiota, whose novel Wayward is out now and calling to you from your local indie bookstore. There will be links to Dana's recommendations for late summer reading on the website at burnedbybooks.com. If you have a chance, please rate the show at iTunes or Spotify to bring new listeners into the fold. I am, as always, grateful for the time you spend with me thinking about the books we love. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books. Burned.